Green Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and we are all now, as in today, um, both um, Victoria is now in a seven-day lockdown. Um, so, yeah, you know, Al, now you only have five reasons to leave home, which is, and the fifth reason being if you are able to get a vaccine. Um, so, yeah, on the, on the line, we have, my, as your presenters, we have myself, Jacob, and me, Zane. Hello. Okay. Now, before we get into the program today, um, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the Wandru land of the Kulin Nation. We like to acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land and that sovereignty was never ceded. Okay, so we have a pretty packed program today. We have a number of um, guests who will be discussing kind of different kind of aspects, covering things such as the changes to the Migration Act. Um, we'll be doing an on-the-ground interview with an organiser of the Stop Land Forces Expo, which is actually going to be happening in Brisbane um, this over this week. And then um, we'll also be interviewing, um, having a bit of a discussion with... Um, a founder of a new homelessness action group based in Geelong, and then talking about the general kind of situation around housing. Now, I guess in the meantime, um, we, in terms of, I guess, kind of like the main sort of news stories that have kind of been dominating the kind of headlines, um, for probably for all of us, probably the main thing that's going to be dominating our lives is the fact that we're going to be in the midst of a seven-day lockdown in Victoria, where basically stage three restrictions are going to be in place, and you essentially are not going to be able to. You only um, the four reasons to leave home have basically been reinstated, um, which which is basically work, caregiving, um, and shopping, and and so on, and exercise, and so on. And then, of course, they added the fifth reason um, to get um, if you um, to get vaccinated. And one just interesting sort of announcement. I, I, I definitely sort of will give. A, I'll just to get. I would like to give a bit of a plug to this. Um, it looks like that in Victoria, um, they have opened up the vac- um, COVID nineteen vaccination to those who are aged forty to forty nine, um, because previously you could only get vaccinated if you're at least over 50 in terms of the um, vaccine roll-up program. Um, so I think that is a positive sign. And I, I guess I'm weighing one of the sort of interesting things to sort of comment on is basically I, I watching the kind of press conference yesterday when they kind of announced the kind of restrictions, it was kind of fascinating to sort of see um, the acting premier um of Victoria, whose name I forgot. Uh, James Molino, I believe. Uh, yes, James Molino. Um, ro- um, talking about how, you know, this lockdown probably could have been avoided if our vaccination program um, was more advanced. Mm. And, of course, the amusing thing about that, even though there's 
uh, even though there's like sometimes this whole thing, um, like in the context of the COVID vaccine, there's been this sort of whole discourse of trying to blame kind of ordinary people for not taking up the vaccine. But actually, in Australians' case, it's actually the government's own incompetence that has contributed to this. And in fact, they have completely under underdelivered on the vaccine rollout. In fact, you can't even um, prior to this announcement that people in their 40s um, could get a vaccine in Victoria, there were actually people under 50 being turned away from getting a vaccine because they were that strict about the sort of um, restrict um, roll um, about the um, the rollout. But of course, at the same time, it's sort of there appears to also be. I've sort of read. Um, I've heard from people that some people in their in their particular age group who are eligible to get vaccinated don't even know that there's that you can get vaccinated. So it's sort of like everything that the government has kind of done in terms of this vaccine rollout leaves, I think, a lot to be desired. Oh, totally. And yeah, this announcement from ScoMo today. I think you were just talking about it before that. Now that there's an outbreak, suddenly they're like, oh, yeah, maybe that uh, quarantine facility that the Victorian government has offered to build is not such a bad idea after all. Look, why does it take an outbreak to see that a dedicated quarantine facility is a good idea? This thing should have been getting built literally a year ago. It's just disgraceful that... Like when the when the Victorian government first offered to build that quarantine facility, they're like, "All right, we'll build this." The federal government has to provide the money, but we've got the expertise to oversee large construction projects. Um, and the federal government was like, "Oh no, yeah. oh you want us to pay for it?" Oh, so they had big wins and kind of ridiculed the Victorian government. And now here we are, a couple of months later. Oh, yeah, actually, maybe that is not such a bad idea after all. And, yeah, I think that's very well said, Zane, because, I mean, I guess you can... One of the sort of things about living in Australia at the moment is you could argue, yeah, when you look at the kind of rest of the world, we had we did have one of the best kind of handlings of COVID-19. The fact that just before this outbreak happened in Victoria, the fact that we're able to kind of live our lives as normal, um, the fact that we're able to have massive protests um, for Palestine and the school strike for climate, which happened in the last week, was all um, brilliant. Um, but I think, you know, one of the one of the, the main criticisms you can make from the government at this point is that they are actually in a position where they could be zero outbreaks like this, or they could be very minimum. If if the government was actually serious about investing in a federal quarantine um, facility kind of system and taking away this whole question of um, um, of quarantine returning travellers in hotels into the bin. Because, great, really, um, after outbreak after outbreak, it's kind of clearly not working. Although, to be fair, in the current context right now, this um, current sort of outbreak... It was, in some sense, linked to hotel quarantine, um, but of course it was a bit more accidental because basically um, someone had left um, hotel quarantine. They had essentially taken the, the COVID test. They were all kind of clear, mm. um, but somehow they managed to get it on the way out the door, essentially. And then, of course, they got to go to Melbourne and then go to kind of different locations. And so that's sort of like the mm. origins of the, this kind of source. But of course, that's just the nature, I guess, of COVID. And I guess one of the sort of big concerns for health authorities is the fact that um, 
the the COVID-19 cases that are out in the community at the moment within Victoria are of the new variant. I think that was sort of, I think, has its origins in India. Mm. Um, and yet yeah, this a new variant of COVID-19 is much more infectious than other strains. So the, high, um, the rate of infection is much higher. In fact, it, apparently, usually there's kind of three to four day period of infection. Apparently, this takes like at least 24 hours. Um, which is creating difficulties for the contract tracers. Um, although my sort of <laughs> armchair sort of, I was just, I somehow would feel it would make it easier for contract tracing if it was, if the infection rate was quicker. But, um, yeah, maybe that, that that's. No, well, there's two things happening there. There's the incubation period, which is how long it takes between you getting exposed to the virus before it's showing up in tests versus the rate of infection, hmm. which is, if I've got it, on average, how many other people am I going to give it to? So I think what's dangerous about the Indian infection, I'm not 100% sure about the incub- incubation period. I think it's a bit longer. So it, it takes longer between you getting infected before the thing really sets up shop in your body enough that it can be diagnosed. But the real dangerous thing about the Indian uh, strain is that it's more infectious. So it, it, people will tend to pass it on to a larger number of people. It jumps from you to other people more easily than the earlier evolutions of the virus, all of which points towards the importance of a global vaccination pro- program because it's no good rich countries vaccinating their population and just letting COVID fester in the global south because the thing is going to continue to mutate and you'll get more infectious variants of the virus. And that's exactly what we're dealing with at the moment. We have to have a global vaccination program and not just leave the poor people to die from this thing. It's disgusting. And um, one thing, to, I guess, to comment on as well is... Basically, I think one of the one of the kind of interesting things I've sort of noticed is every time these sort of short sort of lockdowns kind of happen, I've noticed the kind of mainstream media is always sort of quick to um, kind of go on about the kind of cries of, I guess, um, small business and business. <laughs> um, like I remember before this announcement, the Held Sun had printed a paper, um, a scoop on what the new restrictions were. And basically the majority of the article actually just included voices from from all sorts of business sort of institutions, etc., crying poor um, about the economic impacts of the lockdown. And I would be I'd be frank, I would say that, you know, this lockdown is not gonna be that great for casual workers. Um, mm. because basically the loss in income with the lack and because it's not a long time kind of in um lockdown where the government would be willing to put in government support programs and mm. so on. Although in actual reality, I mean, the government um, should have um, should have kept this COVID-19, the COVID-19 supplement in Centrelink actually permanent. Mm. Um, but of course, they, refu- um, they have they had refused to on the idea that we can all just go back um, to normal. Go and get a job. Yeah, until until to work. until a seven day lockdown happens and then. Yeah. And then, and then that um, that said, casual worker um, may not recover all their shifts that they ha- they previously had under mm. the kind of new under the uh, uh, after the lockdown had lifted. Mm. Well, I've I've currently been shifting from 
being a self-employed carpenter to applying for agency, like labour hire work, which is probably going to be pretty tedious and crap, but whatever. But yeah, I'm in a similar boat, and there's no shifts doing that stuff right now. Um, so yeah, and there's no support either. So yeah, not ideal. The other thing to say here is is better quarantine facilities is a way that we could have avoided this. But another way that we could have avoided this situation is if the scummy Labor government had not privatised Commonwealth Serum Laboratories back in the 90s. CSL originated after the Spanish flu pandemic as a way for Australia to have its own domestic vaccine production. And if if CSL had been kept under public ownership and had a broad charter of having the most up-to-date vaccine manufacturing capability, CSL could have sunk the money into being able to manufacture mRNA vaccines and could be vaccinated could be manufacturing the Pfizer vaccine or similar, not just for Australians, but for the region. And we could be helping global efforts to export that to other countries that don't have those facilities and that can't manufacture them. So I think that's that's the vaccine rollout has been botched. And part of the way that it could have been done better is if we still had a publicly owned vaccine um, laboratory that's capable of mass producing vaccines. Yeah, and it's and I think one of the things that that also kind of reflects is it also reflects that under the capitalist system there's kind of no kind of forward sort of planning. In fact, there's often there's often like they often justify these privatizations for some pragmatic kind of immediate kind of goal yeah. but have no thoughts on actually Maybe this will be bad for business in 20 years mm. when we've got to have lockdowns. Because this public agency that we set up, which could have dealt with these outbreaks a lot more effectively, could have prevented the need for lockdowns. And and then we come back to what you're just talking about, these talking heads from businesses. Oh, we can't handle another lockdown. Well, maybe we shouldn't have privatised CSL. Mm. Exactly. All right. Well, I'm just going to go start. I'll play a quick announcement and then we'll go on to our first interview for the program. You're listening to Green Left Radio. It is about to hit 7.15 a.m. on 8.55 a.m. When I was new to Melbourne, I found a footnote bombs fly on the road and I had like this feast with a carrot and carrots are my favourite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at footnote bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. We 
jail black males in Australia nationally at a rate five times greater than apartheid South Africa jail black males in 1993. The suicide and self-harm rates are the highest in the world and the life expectancy gap is the biggest in the first world. You know, Australians don't like hearing the truth about how bad things are, but the more we resolve from it, the longer this is going to continue. Black fella, white fella, it doesn't matter what you colour. Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff. It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians. The only place predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio and 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that. So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash, I would suggest 3CR is a bloody good place to start. What your name is, we got the hell. Lots of changes, we need more brothers. All right, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio. And on the line, we have Angela um, from Homelessness Action Geelong, which is a kind of new activist group um, that has kind of been formed um, within Geelong to campaign around the issues of housing and homelessness. Um, so, um, so good morning, Angela. Hi, Jacob. Um, good morning, everyone. Thanks for having me on the show. And um, so, to guess to start off the discussion, so you're one of the you're part of um, the homelessness action Geelong and sort of being part of forming kind of the group. And I guess can you start off maybe to set off a bit of um, bit um, the scene? Can you give us a guess a bit of the overview of I guess some of your thoughts on the political situation for housing and homelessness, especially in terms of this post kind of COVID nineteen period we're sort of in? Absolutely. So I guess as a country, what we've seen really is years of neglect from all the levels of government. And there's really been no willingness to actually acknowledge the growing crisis across the country. We saw in the recent federal budget that the government actually had an opportunity but did absolutely nothing to address housing affordability and the low housing stock across the country. So they did introduce a few middle-class welfare schemes um, in the way of grants for those fortunate enough to be able to break into the property market. But market analysts have actually said that grants and schemes like that, they actually only further push up the cost of housing. Um, They threw in a few family violence initiatives, but the reality is that these initiatives actually don't help the most vulnerable Um, And they don't address the issue that there's actually no housing for women and children fleeing violence to go to. What we've seen at a state level, so over the last few years, the state government has actually had a rebranding exercise. So they have rebranded the terms public housing and community housing under that umbrella term of social housing. And so last year in... Um, the budget in October, they did, the Labor government announced the big build um, and it sounded really fantastic, $5.3 billion, but the reality is the state of Victoria is years and years, uh, sorry, it's just really behind other states in terms of property stock. And so effectively what they've done they're actually privatising housing. So 
Of that money, I think something like $3.8 billion is going over to the community housing sector, so the private housing sector. Um, and that's only to build 9,300 community housing properties. So that is way behind what is required. We currently have um, over 50,000 people on the VHR in Victoria. Um, and we have lower than ever public housing stock. So we've got less stock now than what we had 20 years ago. And a lot of the public housing stock, it's really dilapidated at the end of its life. It's in disrepair. So some money has been allocated for that. I know in Geelong, we've been allocated around $180 million, but I'm not sure that that's actually going towards public housing because most of that money is going over to the private housing sector. Hmm. And going into, since you mentioned Geelong, I guess what can you tell us, I guess, about some of the specific issues affecting Geelong in regards to housing and homelessness? I mean, just a bit uh, a bit of a kind of antidote. I mean, I used to kind of live in Geelong, and what I sort of noticed about the real estate market is it appears to be, um, in terms of the renters' market, it appears to kind of be completely crowded and essentially it appears to be almost impossible to get, say, a, a house in, like, Ocean Grove, which is a suburb kind of I used to live in. So what can you, I guess, tell us about some of those sort of Geelong kind of specific kind of issues? Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. So the cost of housing, it's risen astronomically in the last five years in Geelong. Um, and some of that is probably due to migration from Melbourne. We've had a lot of people leave. Melbourne and come down here, especially during COVID. So I think in the last six months, I read something like 6,000 people have relocated to Geelong. So there's really low stock availability down here. And in areas like you've mentioned, um, Ocean Grove and those outlying coastal towns, we have a lot of Airbnb. So they've taken um, long-term rental properties off the market. Um, and I mean, for people that are living on Centrelink payments, there's really not a hope to get into private rental down here now because the cost of properties are so high. And we know that there's no um, affordable one-bedroom properties for anyone on Centrelink income in Geelong. Um, and I guess we have to remember the context of Geelong as a town too. So we do have pockets of Geelong that have high unemployment. So we were a working class factory town. Um, and when places like Ford and Alcoa closed, there's certain communities that never actually recovered from that. Um, and so there's certain pockets of Geelong, especially the north with high unemployment rates, up around 25%. So a lot of those areas have been neglected by all levels of government um, and that just contributed to the poverty and poor housing outcomes for people in the town. And I do know that we have just doubled the national um, average of people that are sleeping rough. So it's at around 15% in Geelong and it's that really comes down to the low availability of stock. And the majority of the people in our region experiencing homelessness are actually women. So it's about 64%. And the key reason for that is actually um, because of family violence, you know. And now, now that we've sort of gotten some of the, I guess, some of the political context, and I think you've given a very sort of good overview of some of the kind of different issues um, that are kind of affecting kind of housing, 
What can you tell us, I guess, about um, Homelessness Action Geelong and, I guess, maybe a bit of a kind of story behind its kind of formation? I mean, you have set a bit of a political context, but we kind of want to hear, I guess, a bit more kind of specifics on how this group was formed and um, and ha- um, who is kind of involved. Yeah, sure. So um, I guess it's something that myself, and other people in a few circles I travel in have been talking about for a few years. So a few of the people, um, you know, that I know through socialists, we've been talking about this. But it was actually really a woman that I knew um, through work. We're both community service workers. Um, And we'd been talking about it for some time and she's really passionate Um, And she kind of said, come on, we have to do this. Things are getting so bad in Geelong, um, especially post-COVID. So the stars kind of aligned in that regard. And it's interesting. We've had a lot of... We've had people come forward that we haven't known through our network. And they've also been thinking about starting a group like this um, on their own, but weren't kind of sure how to go about it. So we've all come together, and yeah, it's been a really positive experience so far. Hmm. And um, can you tell us, I guess, about some of the demands and, I guess, um, some of the issues that um, that this group is kind of wanting to take up in, in the course of its kind of campaigning? Yeah, so um, there's a few kind of key asks or demands that we've been talking about and these are really in no kind of particular order but one of the things we speak a lot about is adopting a housing first model so listeners might be aware of Finland's housing first model Um, so Finland have basically well they say they've eradicated um, rough sleeping they still had some homelessness in the country Um, But basically, the government, all the NGOs, charities and things like that, they came together in Finland um, to tackle this issue. So what they did was they invested in big builds, spot purchasing, that kind of thing. And they did away with um, the model of crisis, refuge, accommodation, transitional, which is the kind of model that we have in Australia. And, that, and I have to say, that model further traumatises people that are experiencing homelessness, having to constantly move through the system. So what Finland did, when a person presented at, say, their homeless entry point, um, they just provided them with a property, you know, a permanent, stable home, so home first, and then they wrap around, they have a wraparound model of care, so they would support that person depending on what their needs were. You know, it could be mental health services, could be disability support, tenancy assistance, drug and alcohol, family violence, all that kind of thing. So, I mean, that is something we talk about and that's kind of the model that I think we need to aspire to and advocate for in Australia. Hmm. And Some what... Of our... Sorry, Jeff. Oh, sorry, you wanted... Um, uh, sorry if I accidentally interrupted you. Do you want, did you want to continue? Um, yeah, we've got a few few other things. Um, I'll try and keep it brief. Um, so obviously we want to stop the privatisation of public housing. Um, we know that community housing providers, rents are higher, eviction rates are higher and tenancies are less secure. We know that the community housing providers are handpicking tenants and you know they're not housing the most vulnerable in our community. So if we continue to privatise, 
um, housing in its entirety, there's going to be nowhere for the most vulnerable in our community to go. We also say that we need to build 50,000 public housing properties now um, and they need to be properties that are built to household demand. So one bedrooms and then larger properties, um, like four bedroom properties for families, they need to be built. And I mean, these large scale building projects are actually going to create thousands of jobs, which is important coming out of this COVID recovery phase. We also, we also think it's really important that no woman or child leaves family violence into homelessness. Um, Whilst the crisis and crisis model of housing is not what we would like to see long-term, we want that housing first model, there needs to be an injection of cash so no woman or child is turned away from the homeless entry point to sleep in their car on someone's couch or on the street. So we saw during COVID that the government magically injected millions of dollars into the pandemic to get the rough street sleepers off the street. So the government's making a political choice to not help women and children leaving violence. Another couple of things quickly, um, which are aligned with the federal government, increasing the poverty payments. So people living on Centrelink, you know, they are, they are pushed out of the private rental market um, Anecdotally, I can say in Geelong, the private real estate, they, you know, if they see that you're on Centrelink payment, they won't even assess your application. So those payments are keeping people in poverty and they're keeping them out of the private um, rental market. And I guess the last thing really is abolishing, um, you know, unfair tax concessions that are benefiting the rich. So capital gains and negative gearing, things like that. So... We know that housing, we're advocating that housing should not be seen as a community because housing is actually human right. Hmm. And I guess now going, um, can, what can you tell us about some of the, the, the act, um, future kind of activities that this group is going to be involved in? Yeah, so look, we did have a speak out plan for next Saturday, but now we're launching into this lockdown. Um, we're probably going to postpone that. We're not certain that that will be able to go forward. But we have been planning and organising and we are thinking um, in Homelessness Week, which is the first week of August, we're planning a series of events um, and we are going to be out doing rallies, marches, out the front of um, politicians' offices, and we are also looking to work with some other groups um, and, you know, perhaps do some lobbying of the local politicians as well. Okay. And um, to, I guess to conclude this kind of dis- um, this sort of discussion, um, do you guess have any kind of final comments um, you'd kind of like to add? Yeah, so I guess, um, well, I'd probably like, to do a bit of an advertisement for us. So we do have an Instagram and Facebook page. So it'd be really great if some of the listeners could get on there, um, have a look at, keep up with what we're doing, support us, you know, share our page around um, and just, I guess, help grow grow um, the group as much as we can. 
All right. Well, thank you um, very much for that, Angela. I think, it, yeah, it was definitely very informative um, and all the best of luck and with your organising in this space. And I think, yeah, because I think there definitely needs to be more bigger sort of activist groups and grassroots sort of mobilisations around this whole issue of housing and homelessness. So, yeah, wish you all the best. Cheers, Ange. Cheers, Jacob. Thank you. All right. Um, so we were just um, d- talking to Angela um, from Homelessness Action Geelong, which is a new group um, that is um, being formed within the Geelong region um, to tackle, obviously, the issue of homelessness and housing. And, of course, you can like their Facebook page and their Instagram by searching up Homelessness Action Geelong. And yeah, and if you, and if you happen to, um, live in Geelong and in that particular part of, um, the region, I um, definitely encourage you to, um, get involved. All right. Well, I'm just going to go play, um, a quick announcement. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio. I just think that it's ironic that the state of Victoria want to treaty with Aboriginal people but have no issue in destroying our sacred sites. War is devastating on the environment. In peacetime, the military is a huge user of fossil fuels, a huge driver of nuclear energy and ultimately the architect of nuclear weapons. Subscribe to 3CR, fighting for social justice and environmental change. And to all the people that are so afraid of the solutions to climate change that they choose to live in denial instead, the current solutions to the climate emergency are much easier to cope with than the outcomes that will come if we don't. Feed Radical Radio. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Follow, follow the sun. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. It is 7.34, well, actually no more, 7.30, or about to hit 7.34 a.m. on 8.55 a.m. Um, so in the, um, we have an uh, interview kind of planned in um, 10 minutes, but in the meantime, we'll get to, um, to discuss a news article, and I think Zane was going to start off this kind of discussion. Yes, so there's been some interesting uh, climate news this week. Um, I'll start with the smaller stuff first. So there was some shareholder activists um, elected to the boards of ExxonMobil and Chevron. I think that, um, you know, being an activist and then buying shares in a polluting company and then trying to get yourself elected to the board and trying to like basically reform some big polluting corporation from within is a kind of flawed strategy. I think we're much better off uh, having mass protests and trying to nationalise those companies. Anyway, um, each to their own. People are having a crack. They're trying to uh, put a spanner in the works and uh, good on them for having a go, I guess. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's uh, I guess, newsworthy, noteworthy. Um, a court in um, the Netherlands has ordered Royal Dutch Shell to cut carbon emissions by 45% by 2030. Part of that ruling is that the court has said that 
uh, Shell is responsible for what's called Scope 3 emissions. So that's when people fill up their car with petrol from the Shell servo and then go and burn it and those emissions happen. Previously, corporations have argued, well, we are merely supplying people with petrol and uh, whether they choose to burn it or not is up to them. Uh, this court has said, no, actually, you are facilitating this entire um, economy of fossil fuel use and you are responsible for what happens when those people inevitably do burn the product that you are selling. Uh, that case was brought by Friends of the Earth and 17,000 co-plaintiffs over there, including, uh, I understand, a bunch of school strikers. So, yeah, a very significant ruling, 45% within less than 10 years that's a big reduction and uh that's gonna that's gonna clamp the profit margins of uh royal dutch shell uh royal dutch shell are going to appeal that but uh nonetheless that's a significant uh ruling and not last but not least here in australia a bunch of climate strike activists um launched a class action against the Vickery coal mine expansion uh, out near Gunnedah, which is sort of, you know, it's, it's northwest of the Hunter Valley. Um, so, the, you know, it's it's part of this kind of expansion of coal mining beyond the Hunter Valley. Um, now, the federal court, which heard this case, has ruled that the federal environment minister, which is currently Susan Lay, has a duty of care to future generations of Australians, to young people who will still be living on this continent uh, decades from now. The Federal Environment Minister has a duty of care to those people when considering whether to approve or not approve new coal mines and approving a new coal mine, even though it's only going to make a small contribution to... Uh, adding to global warming. Nonetheless, it will contribute to global warming and therefore the minister needs to, in exercising a duty of care for these young people's future, basically needs to... Um, the, the, the ruling is, is basically saying you're, you're breaching your duty of care to young people if you approve new coal mines. That's that's a significant ruling. Uh, <clears throat> not only that, but the um, the um, court, the the federal court uh, justice has said that all right. Um, the information that has come out of this court case, where he, we have established that you do have a duty of care to these young people, that's new information. Uh, you need to take that on board in uh, your revisiting your approval of this coal mine expansion. However, um, the federal court justice is kind of preempting that Susan Lay is not going to give a shit and is just going to approve the coal mine anyway. And <laughs> the federal court justice has put Susan Lay on notice and said, to assess the prospects of breach, I also need to assess 
What is the minister likely to do now in the prevailing circumstances and not those that existed prior to the trial? The minister now has a mountain of new information brought forward through this proceeding, which was otherwise not previously before her. Additionally, she has the assessments made by the court about the reliability of that information and the plausibility of the climatic scenarios that may expose the children to a real risk of harm. She will now appreciate, contrary to the submissions made on her behalf at trial, that in deciding whether or not to approve the extension project, she must take into account as a mandatory relevant consideration the avoidance of personal injury to people, She now knows that a duty of care owed by her to the children has been demonstrated and that subject to the court making declarations, it will now be recognised by the law. She also has the benefit of understanding that an unconditional approval of the extension project is not necessarily the only means available to her as a reasonable response to the foreseeable harm to the children. So... The court is saying, look, we've made this ruling. This strengthens your ability to tell these powerful corporations, sorry, we can't approve your coal mine expansion. If you don't do that, and if you do approve this coal mine, we will see you back here because you're going to be in trouble for breaching your duty of care. So this is a significant uh, ruling and it is not where it finishes. This ruling sets in train a legal precedent which opens the door to further legal challenges. And, uh, yes, watch this space because this is quite significant. Um, And there was an article yesterday saying that this also has implications going forward for uh, litigating coal companies re-negligence. Um, so not only does it open the door to challenging coal mine approvals by governments, it also opens the door to basically suing fossil fuel companies for knowingly trashing the planet and, and creating a real and measurable risk of harm for future generations of, of people, you know, for people who are here right now in, in 20 years' time. So, yes, the uh, the bourgeois judiciary and court system, it is... Uh, you wouldn't trust it as far as you can throw it, but it's not immune to social pressure. And when you get some of the biggest protests in Australian history, like the climate strike that we saw in September 2020, that sends shockwaves right through the judiciary. And uh, I I think that that's a big factor, actually, in this type of ruling, is it's it's people power as a counter power to the to the the massive power of those fossil fuel companies, and it, it sort of it almost gives these judges the ability to push the envelope a little bit. Hmm. Yeah, it, it makes perfect sense, really. Yeah, I definitely agree with Why you. Why are we approving new coal mines? It is utter lunacy. Yeah, I definitely agree with you on that sort of characterization of the bourgeois kind of law system. I mean, really, ultimately, the, the system is kind of designed to protect 
uh, the interests of the rich and powerful um, at the expense of ordinary people. But at the same time, you know, it is quite clear that, you know, popular mobilisations, um, strong kind of campaigns and shifting the consciousness of ordinary people can actually have an impact on um, legal kind of outcomes. And especially I think, the, um, I actually think that some of the legal work within the refugee campaign, and this is actually something we're going to be talking about with, uh, at, for our next kind of interview, has actually been quite important in terms of actually um, contributing to some of the releases of refugees. But of course, though it's not just um, the efforts of a good kind of individual lawyer getting that sort of done, it has actually been the efforts of refugee rights campaigners actually setting the, up the political context for something to be able, mm. like that to be able to happen. Yeah, totally. I think that the role of the role that progressive um, lawyers can play as part of a broader campaign of mass mobilisation is very important. Um, I, I, it's only a problem, I think, when um, campaigns become excessively reliant on a progressive legal campaign and they forget about mass organising in the streets. You've got to have both. But, yeah, shout out to all the progressive lawyers out there uh, fighting for the rights of refugees, fighting for civil liberties, um, defending Aboriginal people who have been, you know, hideously prosecuted or, or murdered while in custody. All right. Well, um, I'll just go play um, a quick announcement. And, um, yeah, hope listeners enjoyed that little discussion we just had. And, yeah, we'll go move on to the next interview we have for the program. You are listening to Green Left Radio. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned fined or charged for breaching COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. All right, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio. And on the line, um, we have our second guest for the program, um, Paul Gregoire, who is... Um, who is a journalist with Sydney Criminal Lawyers and also a regular kind of contributor to Green Left as well. And just recently, Paul Gregoire um, wrote I guess, uh, an article about um, some of the recent kind of changes um, to um, the Migration Act um, that the federal government has kind of locked in and basically wrote about how these kind of laws um, essentially are hardened, uh, um, are basically um, aimed against um, refugees and, I guess, asylum seekers. Um, so, yeah, good morning, Paul. Good morning. Uh, happy lockdown. Yeah, well, you're not in lockdown, but because you're in Sydney. No, no, for you. Yeah. 
So, um, Paul, I guess maybe to start off, um, what can you tell us, I guess, about some of these changes and amendments that, I guess, have been made to the Migration Act? And I guess we'll kind of start from there. Well, on the 13th of May, the government passed a bill called the Clarifying International Obligations Removal Bill, which amended the Migration Act. The government said it did this as the 2017 Federal Court ruling found a section of the Act was forcing its hand to send protected unlawful non-citizens back to their countries of origin in breach of our nation's non-refoulement obligations. So the principle of non-refoulement is contained in the 1951 Refugee Convention. It means states that have ratified the convention, like Australia, can't send refugees back to the country from which they fled. Uh, if it in, entails a risk of irreparable harm. So they have, they've changed the law with bipartisan approval so that in the case of protected unlawful non-citizens, the government is not forced to send them back to danger. Um, an unlawful non-citizen um, is a person from overseas who doesn't have a visa so they can't stay here. Often um, they're overseas residents who have had visas cancelled for breaking the law. So if you, if, if you can, if you get over, say, 12 months prison sentence at the moment today, you can be uh, deported automatically because, and that can be multiple offences, multiple minor offences. Um, so they can be deported or these people can also be people who've arrived seeking asylum, but they haven't been let in. Um, so if an unlawful non-citizen has been found uh, to have protected status, it means they face harm if they return to their country of origin. So on the surface, new Home Affairs Minister Karen Andrews is simply trying to do the right thing. She, she and her department have said um, in not having to send these vulnerable people back to potential harm, but there are also other reasons. And isn't, but um, isn't I guess a consequence um, of of these kind of amendments is essentially kind of like the entrenchment of indefinite detention. So yeah, what what can you kind of, yeah. I guess comment on that? Well, that's right. So however, so there is this more sinister reason of having changed the law. The government is detaining over a hundred of these protected unlawful non-citizens in immigration facilities who's now been there for over five years. It can't send them back and it won't let them into the country. One guy has been, is heading up to 12 years in detention now. But last summer the government was forced to release this, a 29 year old Syrian man back into the community after he'd spent six years in immigration detention. His visa had been cancelled due to uh, breaking the law, but they, if the government couldn't send him back to Syria because it had the non-refoulement obligation. Um, the reason why they had to release him was because his lawyer, who, who is Alison Patterson, she's from Human Rights for All, she argued that under the principle of habeas corpus, there needs to be a reason for a person to be detained. And this man uh, should have been deported back to Syria under this law that they changed, but that wasn't happening. So they had to release him because there was no reason for his detention. So... What they've now done is they've made that change to the law, which has reversed this need to send people back to their country, even if they face a risk, if they've had their visa cancelled. So they've, they've, they've upturned that there's no longer that precedent, precedent is no longer set. So now these people can just 
continue to languish in uh, indefinitely in detention centres. So those visas, um, so those who've had their visas cancelled for criminal convictions, they've already served their time in prison, but now they're just spending indefinite detention, time in indefinite detention. Hmm. And I guess going into this, um, we're, we're kind of just discussing. Um, you know, before um, we were kind of doing this interview, we were kind of having a bit of a discussion about, I guess, the role, I guess, of law and, I guess, activist kind of movements. But I guess going into, I want to kind of ask a question about some of the implications of this for in terms of the Medivac, Medivac refugees who remain in detention. And another kind of context as well is, do these kind of changes um, in law, is it meant to kind of address a particular kind of issue, which was basically a number of the, uh, a number of Medivac refugees, the government was actually, um, in some sense, um, forced in a position where it actually had to release some of these refugees who were being detained, um, Medivac refugees who were kind of being detained, and, and it had to kind of, and it was the kind of result of some legal kind of efforts by lawyers. And so, yeah, is there sort of any sort of connection um, well, between these changes? Yeah, there was rumours that there was a connection, and everyone was questioning it, like amongst the activist community, is this why... Because when a few of the Medivac detainees were released in December and people started saying, it, is it because that Syrian man was released on the habeas corpus ruling? Um, I spoke to National Justice Project's George Newhouse last week or the week before, and he said he didn't think that was a reason. The government has blocked up this uh, legal loophole to deal with people uh, like the Syrian man. The, the, these laws won't affect the Medivac people. But having said that, I also spoke to Refugee Action Coalition's Ian Rintoul, and he believes that he can see a correlation between the new laws and also the government's position, which has changed on the Medivac refugee. Mm. So... Yeah. Oh, you can feel free to continue, um, Paul, if you're saying... Well, I was going to say, the Medivac refugees, they came here, there was about a hundred of them, about ten of them were released last December, and people thought it was because the Syrian man had been released. Then by February, uh, about a hundred of them have all been released into the community. And Rintoul says that back in January, the government looked set to release them all. And, and Dutton was saying that suddenly it was a financially sound idea to release them and let them into the community. So 100 released. But then there were 60 more odd more, like, still in hotels. Um, they're in a facility in Darwin and various immigration facilities. They're still in there. And months later, it now seems like the government isn't... They're not about to be released, like the others... And there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason why some have been released and why some haven't, because basically they're all given a security clearance to come to Australia after they'd been in on the Nauru or Manus for like seven odd years. And so they'd all been cleared together to come to the mainland and 100 have been released and 60 are still there. Hmm. Um, Paul, I had a question. Um, what is the... What does like United Nations uh, Refugee Convention or law say about um, keeping people in indefinite detention? Oh, I don't think the I, 
the UN, the refugee, that it doesn't allow for indefinite detention. We should not be detaining people indefinitely. Hmm. It's uh, it's a form of torture, is it not? Yeah, it's a form of torture. Um, I don't know the precise classification of that, but that's probably under the UN Torture Treaty. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Well, um, the next kind of la- the next kind of question, and then we'll probably get around to kind of concluding, is um, we've had a bit of discussion about some of the implications um, of this legislation for refugees. Um, but I guess I'm kind of interested in hearing what is guess, the implications um, of this legislation for um, those who are outside that, like people who are migrants. Um, um, I forgot the kind of correct kind of term, but there's also um, people who've um, come from New Zealand and decide to kind of settle in here. Like what, is, what did this sort of this legislation sort of say on sort of those um, aspects, I guess, of migration? Well, this, this legislation will affect non-citizens, like, so basically foreign residents who live here but don't have citizenship, they can have their visa cancelled today if they are sentenced to more than 12 months' prison time. Uh, this law was changed in 2014 under Scott Morrison as Immigration Minister, and the effect it had is because it used to be 24 months and they dra- dragged it down to 12 months and the effect it had is it started uh, to cause uh, the mass deportation of New Zealanders. So they've des- deported a couple of thousand New Zealanders since uh, early 2015 under these laws. But those people don't have protected status because New Zealand, uh, returning them to New Zealand isn't returning them to irreparable harm. But, so they, they're not affected by these laws. Um, it's protected people. So if you're in the same situation and say you're from Syria or you're a Rohingya person and you're from Myanmar and all of a sudden you've uh, fallen short of the law, this can be... For, there, there are numerous uh, New Zealanders in Christmas Island right now who are there for traffic offences. And so you can have numerous traffic offences, uh, be a Rohingya person, you're sent to detention, they can't send you back, but they won't release you back in the community. Those people will just sit in long-term detention as of the new laws. All right. Well, um, we're kind of reaching, I guess, a bit of the kind of end of um, our time. Um, Paul, do you, guess, have any kind of final kind of comments you'd like to make? And also you can feel free to kind of make a plug for the feature article you've written for um, Green Left. Oh, yeah, I wrote an article on this for the Green Left. But, I mean, I do think it's important to know that the government has been turfing out all these New Zealanders as well. I mean, it's... it's uh, not a lot of people know that half the deten- half the population in the detention centre is often, well, a quarter is often New Zealanders these days, and they're being turfed out because our Prime Minister decided to change the laws, make them harder. All right. Well, um, thank you um, very much, um, um, Paul. I think you've given a good um, kind of overview of um, some of these changes and I guess the implications it has had um, for refugees and psychon seekers and non-citizens. Um, so, yeah, keep up, um, keep up the good um, kind of journalism and, um, yeah, um, thank you very much um, for speaking to us. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks again, Paul. Have a good day. Yeah, you too.
All right. Well, we're just um, speaking to Paul Gregoire, um, from who is a journalist for the Sydney Criminal Lawyers on some of these kind of on some of the recent kind of changes um, to the Migration Act and its implications um, for asylum seekers. Anyway, I'll just go play a quick announcement for the next minute and then we'll go on to the Green Left Actors calendar, which might look a bit slightly different because of this one week lockdown, but I'll go see um what um what 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 is actually coming up actually in terms of events. You're listening to Green Left Radio. The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed! Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and now it is time for the Green Left Activist Calendar. Now, a few things about this activist calendar. Obviously, um, we're going to, um, we are in a one week lockdown. However, that lockdown is, um, as far as I know, due to kind of end this coming kind of Friday. Um, not this, not this Friday, but the following kind of Friday. Yeah, yeah, the, it's basically next week it'll, it'll potentially end. So essentially what that has kind of meant is the number of sort of planned events that were sort of supposed to be happening was this Saturday there was supposed to be um, a Palestine rally um, following the um, the past two um, Palestinian rallies, which were very massive and actually very um, kind of expiring. And so instead, I think they have since been. I'm just going to just get the new date for this new for the new Palestine um, rally um, for the next Palestine rally because it's going to be. Let me just go. Sorry, it's going to. As far as I know, it's supposed to be happening on. June the 13th at 1pm. So that's when the next Palestine rally, assuming everything's all good and we're kind of out, out of lockdown by then, um, we're going to be, tench- um, we're going to be likely to have a Palestine rally kind of then. And then there was also the Unionists for Refugees rally that was supposed to be happening on Saturday has also been postponed as a result of the lockdown, but, um, there hasn't been a sort of date picked up, um, for that yet. So, um, to just to, um, to tell you about some of the upcoming events, um, there's going to be a public dis- um, forum by Green Left and Socialist Alliance, um, Why Israel is an Apartheid State, at 6.30pm on Tuesday, June the 8th. Um, this is going to be at the Resistance Centre, Level 5, 407 Swanson Street, but it's going to potentially have limited in-person attendance, so there will be a Zoom link added to that event, but I'm, it hasn't been set up yet, but I'll, I've, for the next Green Left Actors calendar, I will... Note um, the Zoom link, and if you can check the Facebook event and Green Left page, you should be able to get that. Um, there's going to be a film screening, um, Venezuela Solidarity Fundraiser, on June 10th at the 6.30pm at the MUA, 46 Island Street, West Melbourne. 
Um, there's going to be a protest, Bacchus Marsh, no ta- toxic soil at 10.30am, the Rupert Rance Reserve, 65.9 Bacchus Marsh Road in Bacchus Marsh. And then on Sunday, there's going to be World Refugee World Refugee Day, um, the World Refugee Day Rally, Permanent Breezes Not Discrimination at 2pm at the State Library 328 Swanson Street. And so that is actually pretty much all I can sort of note for the Green Left Activist Calendar. As I kind of said, the one week sort of lockdown actually took away from a number of events I probably would have advertised and otherwise. Um, so yeah, I think Zane wanted to kind of make a mention of a few um, different kind of things. Yeah, so just a couple of things. Uh, the, uh, people may have seen some footage or, uh, photos going around and I find, just wanted to send a shout out. I am, uh, I've got an interest to declare here. I'm a rank of file member of the CFMAU, uh, construction division. I have not always agreed with, uh, various things my union has done and that has earned me a rebuke once or twice from the leadership of the union. <laughs> Uh, anyway, contrary to what they may think, I'm, uh, I'm not all doom and gloom. Uh, there are times when I'm proud to be a CFMEU member. Um, I, I do think the union does take, uh, safety on construction sites quite seriously. It's been able to win, uh, pay rises for its members over the years and it's uh deserves some respect for those things it's a very dangerous industry construction anyway the palestine rally that happened last saturday saturday as people know that was probably the biggest palestinian rally uh palestine solidarity rally in melbourne's history and as the rally was marching past a construction site in the city uh members of the rally were able to pass a palestinian flag to the CFMEU members running that site and they paused work for a moment and they raised the Palestinian flag over the city which um, to me that's that's the gold standard that's that's what solidarity looks like um, there will probably be some union members who say the union should just focus on pay and conditions and just be narrowly conditioned on uh, narrowly focused on pay and conditions not lend its voice to social struggles. Um, I disagree with such people. The the proudest moments of the union movement, I think, is when it has um, added its voice to social struggles and shown its solidarity with workers in other parts of the country and other parts of the world. So shout out to the CFMEU for raising the Palestinian flag at that rally. And I'm sure all the people that were at that rally would agree. And you can hear them cheering in the video. Uh, shout out on a, on a similar note, the Maritime Union of Australia, all three New South Wales branches of the MUA have vowed to oppose, with everything they've got, um, moves to frack uh, Aboriginal land in the Pilliga Forest up at Narrabri. So shout out to the MUA up in New South Wales as well, taking a very clear and unequivocal stand against fracking. And it is not insignificant that the MUA is taking this stance because the MUA would be handling uh, a lot of the... That that fracking is not just for domestic use, but there's plans to build these big pipelines down to the port of Newcastle and then put that gas on uh, boats for export. So 
if the MUA is going to be blocking that sort of stuff, then they're actually in an industrial position to throw a spanner in the works. So shout out to the MUA. And just finally, uh, there was a big rally in Gunnedah this week against the police killing of Gamilaroi man Michael Peachy. Um, Michael Peachy was suffering from uh, mental health issues, uh, had tried to um, find assistance, had approached mental health services in Gunnedah and had been turned away and then was having a, uh, a mental break of some description. Police were called and when the police turned up, uh, Michael Peachy was sprayed with OC foam and tasered and uh, his uh, his heart has evidently stopped beating and, and he died. So um, it's just disgusting. The, 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 the number of black deaths in custody this year has just been really disturbing. It just keeps happening year after year. It is unacceptable. And, yeah, if you if you look that up on your Facebook feed or on Google, there was a... a by Gunnedah standards for a small country town, quite a substantial rally marching through the middle of Gunnedah, demanding justice and uh, demanding an end to these police killings. If someone is having mental health issues, they need to be treated by mental health services, not the cops. Uh, it's just absolutely unacceptable. It speaks both to the lack of proper funding of mental health services in this country that Michael Peachy was turned away when he sought assistance um, and then it also speaks to the just unnecessary violence of the state when uh, dealing with people who are having some sort of mental health issue. It's just unnecessary to treat such people with, with such terrible violence and you know, literally kill them people having a mental health and mental breakdown should not be killed for for the crime of, of being mentally unwell so yeah um, shout out to those Gamilaroi activists fighting for justice and waging the long battle to tackle the, the violence of the, the carceral state that's a marathon battle. All right. Well, thank um thanks for all those um those kind of news updates um Zang. Yeah, and I think it's um definitely very tragic um what has happened there. Um, but yeah, definitely be on the lookout for any sort of um solidarity actions that um might be coming up. All right. Well, I'm just gonna go play a quick announcement and we'll get ready for our third and last interview for the program. You are listening to Green Left um. Radio. Sorry, I'm just having some issues here. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep us going for another year. Independent community media is more important than ever, and we need your support to power community radio. The 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au, call the station on 03-9419-8377 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during business hours. 
3CR Community Powered Radio. All right, you're listening to um, Green Left um, Radio. And um, on the line, we have Margie Pestleris um, from the Disrupt Land Forces campaign. Margie was one of the peace pilgrims that played a laminate um, at Pine Gap, and she's involved with the campaign to stop foreign ex- assistance to the Indonesian militarization of First Nations land in West Papua. So the reason why we have her on the on for um for the program today is in Brisbane um, this coming Tuesday. There's going to be a protest against the Land Forces Expo, and the Land Forces Expo is basically going to be this exposition where um, the military is just make, um, the Australian ADF and military institutions are basically going to show off all their kind of new gear and all sorts of different things, basically promoting militarism, etc., and so on. So, yeah, good morning, Margie. Good morning, Jacob. Yeah, we're here in um, Yagara country in Minjin or in Brisbane, and it's a beautiful, beautiful up here. Um, we don't have COVID. Yeah, mm. well, well, um, maybe you might, but okay, you've had it, you've had outbreaks before, but. Um, yeah, well, that's the, actually every every time we've um, interviewed someone from outside Melbourne, they've sort of mentioned that. <laughs> well, it's a bit sad because we're missing some of our people from Melbourne who are not going to be able to get up here. But yeah. um, we, uh, it's, it's not quite true that we're running a protest next Tuesday. The, the Socialist Alternatives have got a small uh, mass rally there next Tuesday morning, but we're running a week of resistance. And we started last night with the tanks rolling in last night, and we blocked one tank going into the convention centre for four or five hours, actually. Um, it was an autonomous drone or a, uh, a weaponised small tank uh, that's an autonomous tank. Mm. And, yeah, so we've already started and it's on every day now until next Thursday, or maybe even Friday, because if they've had four and a half days, five days bump in, presumably they'll have a few days bump out as well. All right. Well, yeah, maybe to kind of start off, um, get, um, yeah, sorry for that. In fact, I thought the, um, I actually recalled that the protest was sort of outgoing, then I got confused because it seemed to be the main event was on Tuesday. So maybe to no, get you to start. The socialist, the socialist alternatives thought it was it's on Tuesday, but it actually it's that they are just organising one thing like for two hours on Tuesday morning. But we're organising a week of resistance. So we've got people coming in from all around the country. We've got West Papuans here. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got First Nations people tonight. We kick off with a fire to tell the stories of the military of Minjin because, you know, every city and every port, every river in this country was militarised. And especially in those early days, anything that was uh, was kicked off in the 1800s mm. was well, militarised. Well, just to interrupt, Margie, um, I guess maybe just for our listeners, um, maybe to start off, what can you tell us, I guess, about this Land Forces Expo, just so people can know, um, have a bit of an understand, and I guess the political protest for why this sort of long-term, long, term, long t- um, this sort of week-long kind of blockade slash protest is being organised against it. Well, you know, the weapons industry is uh, the only thing the government is doing at the moment. You know, you'll if you if you look very closely, you'll find it's the only thing they're doing, and they're chucking thirty billion a year at it, and they're. Uh, been doing that for two or three years now, and they have a quite an extensive plan to build military uh, facilities in every sort of marginal re- electorate across the country 
to lock us into a program of 30 to 40 years of um, industrial dependence on uh, the death industry. And so it's following the US model. The big companies drive it. The big companies are in the uh, corporations. They're in, in the minister's offices. Both the federal and the state minister's offices. They're getting as much money as they can for themselves. That money, of course, trickles out to their profit, profiteers overseas or where they've got investors. Um, and then um, a certain amount, then they are tied or they're, they're supposed to be grooming um, uh, Australian companies to enter the supply chain. So this is an, a, a massive economic project. But of course, a, a small percentage of it, a small percentage of the outcome goes to very great harm to First Nations people, uh, you know, urban uh, human rights activists, uh, democracy activists, community-based uh, struggles, civil resistance. This is where the weapons are headed. They're headed for us, those of us who are on the street. And they're they for our friends. You know, our friends are the people in Myanmar. They're the people in West Papua. They're the people who are being shot at and fired with by these weapons. And it's the same companies... Um, across the whole spectre. Hmm. Well, that get, leads into very well, I guess, into the kind of next question, because um, as someone who was um, part of um, the blockade IMARC protests, um, I think a few years ago, um, there were kind of all these sort of different kind of political links um, kind of formed between sort of different kind of sections and groups, um, because mining was a, is a bit, particularly was an issue that um, affects all sorts of strands of society. And I guess what I want to hear is, I guess, some of the political themes that the protesters, I guess, um, drawing upon, given the kind of RAS links that can be made uh, between Australian militarism, you know, we have the whole issue of the oppression of West Papua, um, which is something you're, um, you have been heavily involved in. And, of course, there's also the whole issue of Palestine and um, arms aid um, to the Israeli Defence Force. And, of course, there's also been this sort of recent kind of rhetoric from um, the drumming up of, of war against China. So I kind of want to hear what are some of the kind of political kind of themes and links that are kind of being forged in the course of this um, sort of protest? So those are important. And then we also know that militarism drives extraction. So if we're going to talk about climate change or mining, you know, and look at those two things as linked and our economy is based on those things, climate, uh, militarism drives those things. Those things don't really happen without extreme militarism. So you get the situation in the um, 1800s where they um, steal Aboriginal land at the, at, you know, with guns, with, you know, with the British, um, the British military are the ones who move in um, with, um, a militarised police force. So you get the same thing happening in West Papua at the moment, which is very highly rich in um, copper and gold through a lot of its highlands. And so um, they're starting to carve it up, deforest, carve it up, and push the people that live there out of their villages. And there's a massive sort of refugee crisis, an internal refugee crisis happening right now in West Papua. So... so so militarism drives extraction, and we have to realise that without uh, military extraction, we have we have a much better uh, chance at stopping extraction if we can um, handle militarism as well. And then we look at toxic masculinity. We think that a, a lot of the toxic masculinity we see in our society um, is driven again by uh, this, the military, the, the militarisation of men. Uh, as people move through 
the uh, army system. And so we, of course, have been at war for 20 years in Australia, and that war is driven by the weapons companies themselves. The, we know that weapons companies drove the invasion of Iraq and that they um, you know, were involved in the perpetuation of the war in Afghanistan. Afghanistan could have, cost, could have finished years and years ago, but the weapons companies keep it going because they're the winners. You know, people go, oh, how come we haven't won? Well, well, they did win. The corporations won. And that's what they're after. They're up to, after um, massive profits that go with the perpetuation of war. They get to sell things as it's going on and they get to sell things in the cleanup and then they get to sell things in the next part where they, you know, redestroy it in these cycles of violence that are waged against uh, poor brown people um, uh, away from the gaze of the white privileged uh, middle and owning classes. So we really look at um, that intersectionality between um, the violence that's going on against democracy struggles. Uh, you know, the, we, we would say that the war with China was sabre-rattling. It's a not um, a real thing. You know, there's no way Australia are going to challenge China. China has the might, a much huger might. There's no way we're going to anywhere get anywhere near to China. So um, it's a type of sabre-rattling that keeps everybody on edge and then allows them to perpetuate the way they they push the weapons industry. So they're putting $30 billion a year into it at the moment. And they've been doing that for two or three years already, you know. So at the moment, this is what this weapons uh, conference is about. It's called Land Forces, so it's about army equipment. And it's really, it's, it's run by the Queensland government. The Queensland government are facilitating the whole thing. You know, they've hired the hall, they've got the biggest space. They're the sponsors. Um, there are other sponsors like Rhein Metal, uh, Boeing, EOS is an Australian company that's making a huge amount of money in, in Canberra. Um, this, these are companies that have big tenders with the Australian Army. And what this conference is about is about all these... It's an incredibly cooperative industry. So they're all uh, looking for new partnerships where they can uh, stand in the shower of cash that is flowing out from the public purse to them. So that's really what the conference is about, is how can we get your cash? And that's our cash, right? And that's the cash that's driven... Uh, that 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 comes from First Nations um, wealth. It comes from the land. So we can see this is the place where the fossil fuel industry and mining intersects with the weapons industry. So the money comes out of the fossil fuel industry and then it gets invested back into the companies that run the military-industrial complex. Um, and, you know, in there, there's virtually... You know, they, they run enough to keep the population compliant and... This is a festival of resistance. It's about not being compliant. It's to get out. You know, we were four hours last year, last night. We had um, just four arrests, um, and we'll see those people in court this morning. But um, they, you know, they sat there staunchly um, while the rest of us danced around the tanks and took up that space outside the convention centre to say no, that we ordinary people stand with the people of Myanmar who are being shot at. We stand at the with the people of Colombia who are having their eyes shot out with, with rubber bullets from that industry. We stand with the people of West Papua who are being beaten to death and shot at and strafed by Boeing helicopters. Um, and we stand with the people of the southern Philippines who are just saying, let us develop our communities. Um, and yet, well, and the people throughout the Philippines who stand up for justice. So we're looking at 
um, you know, pulling, pushing that discourse out and reminding people that without controlling the military-industrial system, eventually they come for us. Um, and we know that they came for First Nations people a long time ago here in this country and that they continue to use their weapons um, and uh, systems of war, including incarceration, to control and um, subdue First Nations people where they can. Where often they can't, though, because they're indomitable. Um, so we just that's what we're looking at. We're looking at we've got a week of a program. Our program includes, um, you know, theatre of theatre of intervention. We're looking at how we can get our crowds working together in a way that is much more creative. Because we find that with um, a creative spirit, people are much more likely to want to uh, join and be part of it. Um, and that with with a creative spirit, we can also message much more carefully into the. Um, uh, into the wider society, and we're looking to disrupt. And you know, we already started last night with a four-hour disruption. Uh, they brought, un unfortunately, after that, they brought two m massive tanks into the weapons centre, which had been our target. But um, uh, we'll look. They're obviously bringing stuff in Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Four days of bumping. It's a lot of stuff that they're looking mm. at. Um, well, just to jump in. Just to jump in there. Um, um, and also just to give a, um, just to let kind of our listeners kind of know, um, I kind of, um, is that, um, 3CR is definitely going to be trying to cover as much kind of coverage of this, um, ongoing kind of protest. Um, so stay tune in potentially to other 3CR programs, um, for more kind of coverage as the kind of protest sort of goes on. And now that gets into the kind of question of, um, and we're kind of running a bit, um, we're running just a bit, um, tight on time. So we just have to be a bit, um, quick on this. Um, I guess you, you alluded to this already, um, in your previous kind of response, but I guess just to get more, um, concrete, I mean, what can you tell us about um, the protests and I guess how people will kind of be mobilised for it, like how long is it going to be going for? And, um, yeah, that's, that, that's, uh, and the kind of different sort of actions that are being sort of planned. Yes, so, um, we're bringing people together for Saturday and Sunday so people can, who haven't already been involved in the planning can, can come in and, and decide what they want. Of course, it's a do it yourself protest. <laughs> it's not, um, we've, we haven't, you know, we don't, we provide the container, but we don't necessarily do all the organising. There's a lot of um, other groups that are coming and be, being involved, and young people have ideas about how they want to address what's going on. Um, but as I said, I mean, the, the things we can talk about the most are these sorts of ideas of theatre of intervention, using uh, different sort of crowd techniques that include, um, you know, uh, dance and, and uh, sort of, looking at ways you can unify the crowd. But we've also got a workshop. Workshops we've got, we're looking at STEM and the weapons industry in schools. We're looking at, um, you know, just basic upskilling of activists, um, you know, legal briefings. Uh, we're looking at uh, how people can research the weapons industry. We're really looking for targets that, we, that are going to be the sorts of targets that are going to be, uh, that yield to people power. And then we've got, uh, we'll be trying to stop some of the, the vehicles coming in to set up. Uh, so we've got a few days of intervention while they try and set up. And then while it's on, we'll be looking at disrupting people, um, in the flow of the, of, of, you know, of the gathering. So, um, obviously it's highly fortified, uh, because, as people in Melbourne know. 
Um, they take their weapons and they put them in forts, whether that's high buildings behind lifts or um, big fences. Mm. But or or but but we find ways. You know, our, we have to move into the space to figure out how we're going to use it. And we're expecting to do this for several years. We don't think you know we we shut it down with one mass protest on a Tuesday morning. You know, our idea is that they don't come back to this city and we'll have a mass rally on, on Tuesday morning at 7am with the kick-off. Uh, you know, we're, they're expecting Peter Dutton perhaps to be there. Um, certainly the Premier, you know, the, the federal... The state government is the major sponsor, so uh, they're more likely to have um, Labor Party people come through, I would say. Um, and, of course, it's a bipartisan issues with both Labor and Liberal are totally in it together and the the Labor government of Queensland have totally sort of supported already and refused to say how much they've spent on it and they've spent a lot of money at they're, they're, they're you know they're booking out this um, this convention centre. Yep, sorry to jump in there Margie, um, but we're actually r- pretty much have run out of time um, because our program no technically worries. ends at 8.30 um, but yes, I definitely want to um, I think I'll probably leave you your, your comments there um, I definitely wish you, kind, we definitely wish you kind of all the best um, for the protest. Um, we are in contact with um, all the kind of main sort of organisers um, and who are, who are part of the action. So we're definitely wanting to sort of get any sort of recordings um, of speeches or of the protests that we're definitely wanting to play on FreeCR. And also I definitely want to, because um, FreeCR is, um, is something that um, streams online, um, there potentially could be some Brisbane listeners listening in now or people based in Queensland and we definitely highly encourage you uh, to be part of the protests. Um, so, yes, yeah, thank you very much, um, Margie, uh, for having a bit of discussion. Saturday. Come down Saturday, Friday night tonight for the fire and storytelling, Saturday morning for workshops and Tuesday morning for the mass rally, but it's on all, the, it's on all week ever, as well. So come down and join us. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Margie. But, yes, we're going to have to cut you off there because we're literally running out of time now. So, yeah, thank awesome. you very much. Thank you. Bye. All right, um, so yeah, we're just talking to Margie, who's one of the main organisers of the Stop Land Forces sort of blockade slash protest, um, which is going to be an ongoing kind of thing that's happening in Brisbane right now. Um, but yeah, if you look up on Facebook page, um, the Facebook page Stop Land Forces, you should be able to kind of get all the updates. And as I said, FreeCR will be playing footage. Now, we're actually getting right into the end of the program. Um, like to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week and um, thank all our guests for being part of the program. You are listening to Green Left Radio. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from the slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt, now thunders in the 